Thank you, Chantel and Desiree. What a beautiful song that really highlights what we're looking at this morning in Psalm 91. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Psalm 91. We're taking a little bit of a break from John chapter 11, and we're going to look at Psalm 91 this morning, a familiar psalm and a psalm that I pray would greatly encourage you as it has me. I prepared this sermon a little bit earlier uh, in the year, in the summer, when uh, Dr. Lawson unexpectedly was able to come pay us a visit and uh, that was the Sunday I was going to preach this psalm, so I've reserved it for you for this Sunday. Uh, the Shelter of the Most High is the title, and we're going to look at Psalm 91 uh, together this morning. What a great psalm this is, and I want you to listen to the psalm as I read it, and then we're going to dive into our time in God's Word together. Here's what the psalmist writes. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge." No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, overwhelmed by the grace and the glory of your great name. God, thank you for the worship. Thank you for the reading of this psalm that reminds us that you are our shelter and you are our fortress and you are our refuge and you protect us from all evil. Encourage our hearts today. May we come in close to you today to be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in his commentary on Psalm 91, Dr. Steve Lawson tells the story of how the Golden Gate Bridge was built. As you know, it is located at the entrance of the San Francisco Bay, and it is still one of the largest and most spectacular suspension bridges on the planet. How many of you guys have driven across the Golden Gate Bridge? All right, if you're a Californian and you haven't done it, shame on you, all right? You got to go check it out. I remember growing up in Georgia, hearing about the Golden Gate Bridge. I couldn't wait to get out here and actually drive across it. It's a magnificent sight. It stretches a breathtaking 8,981 feet through midair. 
And when this bridge was completed back in 1937, it was the longest and the tallest suspension bridge in the world. One travel guide describes the Golden Gate Bridge even today as possibly the most beautiful and certainly the most photographed bridge in the world. Now, when this world-famous bridge was being constructed, several workmen lost their lives falling from precariously high positions of 200 feet down into the Pacific Ocean. Consequently, the work was constantly behind schedule. Every time a man died, it would delay the progress of construction. And so finally, in a brilliant attempt to speed up the process and to save lives at the same time, an engineer decided to build a safety net directly under the construction area. Then, with such security in place, any workman who fell would not tumble to his death to the waters below, but would be caught by the net. The giant safety net was made out of stout, sturdy cord, and it swung under the construction work. This was the first time in the history of major construction that such a net was used. The cost of the net was $100,000, a staggering figure in those post-Depression years. But the effect was both immediate and noticeable. The work suddenly proceeded at a much faster rate because the workmen knew that if they did slip, the net would catch them and their lives would be spared. This is the same security effect that God's power and his sovereignty had on this psalmist recorded here in Psalm 91. But God's security is not beneath us, it is above us. God himself is our security. He is the one who will protect us from all harm that surrounds us. The psalmist will find his rest here in the shadow of Almighty God. This psalmist, and and you and me as well today, will be able to find that same shelter in the Most High God. He is your rock. He is your refuge. He is your fortress. He is your strong tower. He is and will deliver you from all evil. Uh, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. And this psalm vividly describes God's continuous protection of his people from their many threatening dangers and alarming terrors. Uh, You need to be encouraged today from this psalm to trust in God. And you need to know that today nothing can harm a child of God unless the Lord himself permits it. And if God permits it, then it is for your good and for his glory to humble you and to teach you to be totally dependent on him. God provides grace this morning as a safety net for every Christian so that we can be busy doing the work that God's called us to do. And on some days you will fall, but his net will catch you. He is your refuge. He is our shelter. Uh, The historical background of this psalm is a little bit uncertain. We don't know exactly who wrote it. There's not a lot of context given about why this psalm and how it's written. It's thought that the author, even though it's anonymous, would potentially be one that would be leading the army of Israel into battle. Uh, The basis of the security of the believer is to be found in God's character. As we go into battle, As we're led into our daily lives, 
we must know that God is our refuge, and we must believe in the security of God's character, of his care, of his protection, and of his love. And so this is a psalm that we need to read again and again and again and again for when you face your fear and when you face your foe, you need a place where you can come, a rock that you can stand on, a psalm to call your own, and this psalm is every man and every woman's psalm. This psalm is an incredible encouragement when we're facing times of great danger. And when you face the power of evil and you face the trouble that comes in your life, come back again to this psalm. The psalmist here is urging us to come to the rock that is higher than I. This psalmist is reminding us that there is no God like our God. This psalmist is modeling for us a faith that focuses on the sovereign power of God instead of on the weakened efforts of our foe. And so may you come today with me to this psalm, no matter how weary you are. May you come with me today to this psalm, no matter how discouraged you've been. May you come with me today to this psalm and find that God is your shelter. He is your safety. He is your satisfaction. And we all need God. And today this psalm is about him. And I've broken down this psalm into three headings today. Number one, trust the Lord to be your shelter. Number two, trust the Lord to provide you with safety. And number three, trust the Lord to be your satisfaction. Let's look at these three points in succession. Number one, trust the Lord to be your shelter. If you are taking notes this morning, you could fill in this next subpoint. says dwell in the secret place. How do we trust the Lord to be our shelter? Well, we need to learn to dwell in that secret place. Look in verse one. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That word shelter can be translated as the secret place. Thus, shelter of God equals the secret place of God. And this is exactly how the old King James translates verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And so the verse starts off with this idea of dwelling. This means to remain to stay, to linger. This isn't some place that you pop in and, and pop out of, like In-N-Out Burger. Right? This is where you're going to sit down, you're going to have dinner, you're going to have dessert, you're going to have some coffee, and you're going to make the night out of it, and a whole lifetime, in effect, as you linger in the presence of God. You make His shelter your home. This is your dwelling place. This is your abode. This is where you stay. This is where you live. And what place are we talking about? We're talking about the secret place of God. This word secret place or shelter means to hide or be hid. It means to take refuge in. And there's really something magnificent about this secret place. There's something mysterious about it. Spurgeon writes in his well-known commentary series, The Treasury of David on the Psalms, he writes this, quote, the blessings here promised are not for all believers, but for those who live in close fellowship with God. Every child of God looks towards the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet all do not dwell in the most holy place. They turn to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. Do you hear what Spurgeon is saying? He's saying we all may look into the secret place and get a glance, but we don't all dwell there. 
Sometimes we hang out on the fringe in our sin and in the lust of the flesh, and we're outside of the intimate presence of God. Now, in one sense, positionally, once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. You're never outside of God's reach. But we understand in a more practical sense, there's times that we're close to God, and there's times we're running from God. And we need to know this morning that there's a secret place here for you. And God's calling you in. And he's calling you not to drift away and be distracted by lesser beauties that catch our eyes and not to be so earthly-minded and not to be focused on the temporal but on the eternal. Spurgeon goes on to say, quote, those who through rich grace obtain unusual and continuous communion with God so as to abide in Christ and Christ in them become possessors of rare spiritual benefits which are missed by those who follow afar off and grieve the Holy Spirit of God into the secret place. Those only come who know the love of God in Christ Jesus, and those only dwell there to whom to live is Christ. To them the veil is rent, the mercy seat is revealed, the covering of the cherubs are made manifest, and the awful glory of the Most High is apparent. These, like Simeon, have the Holy Ghost upon them, and like Anna, they depart not from the temple." Well, let me ask you this morning, in those eloquent words of Spurgeon, are you dwelling in the secret place? Are you coming into the holy of holies where that veil of Christ has been ripped open for you to enter in? And notice here he says that we must dwell on the shelter of the most high. Not the second most high or the third most high. Now, unfortunately, we look sometimes for shelter in our own securities, which are second rate at best. We look for shelter in our bank accounts or in our retirement portfolios or in our help or in our parents or in the law or under uh, the covers of your bed, right? Let me find some safety somewhere. I need to keep safe. And it's not wrong to try to look for some measure of security to some degree. That's not wrong. There's even wisdom in storing up provision for, the, for a rainy day, right? But the idea is that can't be your ultimate provision, your ultimate protection and provision is in God, in that secret place where you move in past the outer courts and you come into the Holy of Holies, in that place, that secret place where God dwells. Could this be what Jesus was referring to when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you? Let me ask you this morning, have you come into the secret place? Do you long to dwell where he is? When is the last time you came into the presence of God, parked it, sat down, and just said, I'm just staying right here today, Lord. I don't want to leave this place, Lord. It's dangerous out there, Lord. I want to be right here. And not only are we to dwell in his shelter, but we're also, your next blank there says, we're to abide under his shadow. Second part of verse one, we, we come to dwell in the shelter of the Most High, we also will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. First, we must come to dwell, and then we will start abiding. And we're abiding here, that word means again to remain, it means to lodge, it means to continue, 
It means to endure. The connotation of that verb to abide means that one shall continue to be satisfied. So abiding is remaining in a satisfied state as you are there under the shadow of Almighty God. One lexicon here discusses the idea of an eagle that abides in his nest. It's a safe place where no one knows but the eagle himself. It's a secure place away from all harm and all predators. And this is where you and I need to come into the nest of our God into that quiet place, into that secret place, unto the shadow of the Almighty. Uh, The picture of a shadow here depicts God's overseeing guardianship of every believer's life. This pictures God's power and his protection over you. And this also describes a place in the shadow of a a place of rest and a place of rejuvenation. Uh, This God that we serve and that we know is providing shade for his loved ones. It's hot out there, right? Picture the hot, scorching sun of Israel beating down that happens just like that here sometimes in sunny Southern California, or just go out to the desert in the middle of the summer to where it reaches the temperatures of 130 and above, right? Imagine being out there, and then it's almost unbearable, And then all of a sudden, a soothing shade is provided. Something is blocking the heat. The cool breeze brings refreshment. And there you can rest and relax and lean back and enjoy the shelter. And what I'm saying to you today is God is that shelter. He is your shade. He provides a comfortable place for you to rest in him. It's it's Psalm 27, 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Or how about Psalm 31, 20? In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter. Or listen to Isaiah 4, 5 through 6. The Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and from the rain. So let me ask you this morning, are you abiding in this shadow? Have you come into this secret place? Are you dwelling under the shelter of God? Are you remaining there in this refuge? Do you know the shade of God today? So we will dwell in the secret place. We're to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Your next blank says, for he is my refuge. That's why we come. It's because he is a refuge. Verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge. It's a beautiful verse in a very real and authentic way. He says, my refuge. He's speaking again here from a first-person point of view. He knows God. He knows who he is, and he's saying to God, you are my refuge. Notice he doesn't say, I'll trust in the army or in horses or in chariots. No, no, I will trust in God. God, you are my refuge. My refuge is a shelter from danger, and God is the one to whom we must come to, and we must flee away from danger and find that refuge in him. And when you're having trouble and when you are afraid, you can find shelter in God. It's Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord, I take refuge. Not only is he our refuge, but that next part of verse 2 says, he is my fortress. 
He's my refuge, and he's also my fortress. A refuge is a place to run to. A fortress is a place to rest in. A fortress is a stronghold. It's a castle. It's a strong tower. It's Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Here in Psalm 91, we see a dynamic faith. We see an unwavering resolve to trust in God. This is a faith that is firmly fixed on God himself in the midst of threatening circumstances. This is a full reliance and a full dependence on God. Uh, The psalmist says, he is my refuge, he is my fortress. The end of verse two, he is my God. He is my God. If you haven't picked up on it yet, verses one and two give us four names for God, and each name reveals something of God's character and of his majesty. In verse one, we read about how he's the most high. That's the word Elyon. This name focuses on divine sovereignty and God's majesty over the whole world, that that he's the most high. He's in control. His power and his providence are orchestrating all things. Nothing escapes his eye. All things happen in accordance with his will. He is Elyon. Not only that, but verse 1 says he's the almighty. That word in the original language is the word you know as Shaddai, El Shaddai, right? He is almighty. This name emphasizes God's omnipotence that he is all-powerful, that there's nothing too difficult for Almighty God. His strength and his power surpass all. Verse 2, the third name of God here is used is the Lord. That's the word Yahweh, which represents God as the covenant-keeping eternal God who has chesed love, steadfast love for his own. He will not abandon Israel. He will not abandon any genuine believer. He's a God who always keeps his promises. His word is true, and his covenant is unbreakable and irrevocable. And here I'm talking about the covenant of grace, that when he saves a child of God, that you remain a child of God, and nothing can take you out of his hands. You can trust in Yahweh. Fourth, we see here in verse 2 that the psalmist says that this is my God. The word God here, the word Elohim, It refers to the supreme God who is creator God. This is the God whose greatness and glory surpass anything we can imagine. This is Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We we serve a great God, a mighty God, creator God. Aren't you thankful today that we have a God that you can trust in? Aren't you thankful that we have a God that you can rest in? Aren't you thankful that we have an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God? That's who we're studying about this morning, the person of God. Let me, let me say one more thing to you this morning. Where you find your security is where you find your identity. If your security is in your looks or in your personality or in your popularity or in your pocketbook, then your security is in the wrong place. It's not about how you look on the outside or how many friends you have or how many people like you on Facebook, all right? It's about God, knowing God. It's about coming to him for shelter and protection. 
Uh, These things in the world cannot serve as your ultimate shelter or your shade or your refuge or your fortress. If so, if that's where you put your security, it's going to come crashing down like the towers of 9-11. They won't last forever. They may seem strong for a season, but they will pass away. But God will never pass away, and your security must be in his shelter, in the shelter of the Most High. Your security must be in the shadow of the Almighty. He and he alone is your refuge, your fortress, and your God. Christian, this is your identity. Don't worry about the world. Don't worry about what you have and have not. Don't worry about what the Joneses are doing. You worry about getting yourself to a safe place, and that safe place is found in God. He and he alone. This is your identity. It's not about who you are. It's about whose you are. And if you belong to him, and if you're in Christ this morning, then you are loved, and you are forgiven, and you are protected by the power of God. And so make sure that you know your identity and your security today are in God alone whom you can trust. Now the second heading I want you to look at this morning is this. Number two, trust the Lord to provide you with safety. Look at those next few verses, three through six. You can fill in this blank if you'd like. Let him keep you from fear. Let him keep you from fear. Let's look just now at verse three and four. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Now, please note that in this section of the psalm, the pronoun you is singular, not plural. This personal pronoun is used 19 times in these next 11 verses. God has you in mind individually, and he cares for you individually as a person. You're not just uh, some number of people on earth. You're an individual created with a spiritual imprint that only God knows fully. You're not just a, some, some, some person passing by. You're an individual that he cares for and that he knows by name, and he's calling you in out of the rain and out of the sun and out of the inclement weather into his presence. And he's saying, do not be afraid. Oh, little one, come today and do not be afraid. The psalmist here is addressing individuals and focusing on personal trials and reminding us that we can have a personal trust in God, that you don't have to be afraid Because God promises to deliver you from the snare of the fowler or the trapper. Verse 3, again, harm here is pictured here as a predator who is hunting you and who has set traps for you and who wants to catch you. Kind of reminds me of Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, right? The dinosaurs are coming after you and they know where you are, right? But the idea here is that harm or that hunter or that dinosaur chasing you in your life may be coming after you, but God will deliver you from the snare and from the deadly pestilence. God will deliver you from multiple attacks against your life. God will deliver you from every danger, the traps of the evil one and the poison of the evil one. God will deliver you from. How, you ask? How will God deliver you? He will cover you with his pinions. You see it there in verse 4? He's going to cover you up. Pinions are feathers. Specifically here, they are the outer part of the bird's wing aiding in flight. 
It's that underwing of those long feathers in the back part of the wing that help a bird uh, fly. It's under those wings that you will find refuge. Jesus used this same metaphor when speaking in Matthew 23, 37, and he talked about how he wanted to gather Israel. He wanted to come to Israel and gather them like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He's saying, come to me. Come, let me protect you. It has the picture of a parent who's out about to cross the street, and some car comes whizzing by. You just kind of grab your kids. You put them under your arms. You kind of pull them back a step. You're like, watch out, little ones. Come to dad. Come to mom. Let me protect you. Let me watch over you. This is what God does. He gathers his children under his wings. This is where you find refuge, close to him, leaning on his breast, beneath his wings, the warmth of his embrace. There is a personal closeness represented in this verse of how God sees us as being under the shadow of his figure and under the wings there in protection. Some other verses that talk about this, Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. At the end of verse 4, We read that his faithfulness is like a shield and a buckler. Here it describes two different types of shields. The first shield is that bigger, taller shield, which goes from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, that you can get behind God as that massive shield to protect you from any arrow or any dart of the enemy. That second shield there is the smaller shield, a buckler. It's 18 inches in diameter. It's more uh, commonly known as a companion weapon in hand-to-hand combat during the battle. You know what this is kind of reminding me of? The idea here is if whether you're standing still behind the big shield or you become a mobile warrior for the sake of Christ. Because let me tell you something, you can't always hide behind the big shield. Sometimes you got to get out and move. you got to live in the world, though you're not of the world. And so God has equipped us not only with the big shield that we need at times to protect us from the onslaught of the enemy, but there's that little shield that's a mobile protection for the soldier of God who's out fighting day by day. Well, praise the Lord that he's equipped us that way. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. No weapon will prosper against you, child of God. And such a safe guarding of God's wings and his shield brings the believer unparalleled peace. Verses 5 and 6, we read, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. These two verses are talking about you don't have to fear the terror of night when you might feel the most vulnerable to an enemy's surprise attack. You ever notice how kids just get scared at dark? You know, it could be the middle of the day and you hear a bump against the wall and you're like, ah, whatever. It's the middle of the night, you hear a loud bump against the wall, you're like, ah! That's when you feel vulnerable. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what's going on. What God says, it doesn't matter. You don't have to fear the terror of night doesn't matter what's coming in, even if it is the middle of the day and you have an arrow coming right at you, you do not have to be afraid. The arrow may be aimed at your destruction and your death, but it will not penetrate the armor of God. 
The pestilence that's referred to here in verse 6, it talks about a pestilence that's stalking in the darkness. That could be a reference to spiritual warfare or even the physical disease in the microscopic sense. There is the threat of chemical warfare or some worldwide virus being spread like that of SARS or Ebola that breaks out. It seems like every year somewhere in Africa and it might be coming here to America, right? The idea of microorganisms that they can't be seen. They're in the dark and they're tiny, they're microscopic, but they're deadly. Every year, thousands of people die from the flu. Usually they're immunocompromised a little bit and have already a weakened state, but people just die all the time. They die of things that you cannot see. It reminds us even of how, how God had the, uh, the death angel wipe out the firstborn of Pharaoh and the firstborn of every person in Egypt because they weren't covered by the protection of the blood that was across the doorpost. They got wiped out. And what, what, what we're understanding here is we don't have to fear that. If we're protected in the shelter of God, we don't have to be afraid of anything at night or in the daylight. You don't have to be afraid of the terror of night or the arrow of day or the pestilence of darkness or the destruction of noonday because you're covered and protected by the faithfulness of Almighty God. It's Proverbs 12, 21. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. And so let the Lord keep you today from fear, but let him also, your next blank, let him keep you from falling. Let him keep you from falling. Look at verse 7 and 8. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Verse 7 is saying that no matter how many foes you have, you ever had a day you just feel like the whole world is against you? You're like, man, it's my mom and my dad and my teacher and my classmates and my neighbors. The whole world's against me. Guess what, little child? When you grow up, it gets worse, right? It gets worse. And some days feel like that, right? And yet he's saying here that the idea is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could have thousands. You could have tens of thousands. Whether they come after you, it's not going to be you who fall. It's going to be they who fall. And what you're going to see is that God is greater than any human army. He's greater than any persecuting boss. He's greater than any opposing government. He's greater than any warrior of any type because you will not fall in the battle. You will stand firm and you will receive the victory as a child of God. Do you remember how when Israel was outnumbered by the Syrians in 2 Kings 6, how Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant. Remember that? When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, the problem was Elisha saw it, but the servant hadn't seen it yet. So he's sitting there in fear, trembling with his knees knocking together, and Elisha then said, he prayed this, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, maybe you're here today, you need your eyes opened. All you're seeing is the enemies coming after you, and you need to be reminded today that this verse says there may be a thousand, and there may be 10,000, but they will not 
come near to you. You remember? Yeah, by the way, you're not acting like you believe that. You're not acting like, you're just like, oh, I don't know about that. How about another story? Do you remember a little bit later when Israel's enemy, Sennacherib, had challenged them and mocked God's faithfulness to his word? And while Israel was on the ropes and on the edge of being snuffed out, we read in 2 Kings 19, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all the dead bodies. Just need to be reminded. Open your eyes. See Christ. See the armor of the living God. Know that he's your shelter, that he is your protector. No evil will come near to you. Verse 8 says, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. In other words, in the presence of such danger, you will observe with your eyes the victory of the Lord and the suffering of the wicked. God will recompense the wicked while the believer merely stands back and watches. No evil will prevail over you. In Christ, you are the victor. Now, you're starting to think, I can see it in you. I, can, I, I have discernment. Right? I'm seeing right now, you're like, Adam, you're sounding like a charismatic preacher, boy. Don't you know that there are times bad things happen? And don't you know there are times when people die and they get hurt? So how in the world can Psalm 91 be true then? Well, let me just say to that thought that it may appear as at Calvary that evil has won and good has lost. Such a perspective is short-sighted and fails to see with eyes of faith and to remember the rest of the story. The rest of the story is yet to come. We shall be saved, and they shall be judged, and he will keep us from falling both now and forever. We're talking here about a walk of faith. I'm not saying you won't get any bumps and scratches, and you might lose an arm and a leg. And I'm not even saying you might not die and become a martyr for Christ. But what I am saying is that the devil himself will not have your soul. No, sir. You live for God. He lives in you. You're his forever. He might rescue you now. He might rescue you later, but you will be rescued. And that's why Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that's the more concern that you're not stumbling into sin, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore. Evil happens, bad times come, but God's working even in that to deliver you. You're still here, aren't you? I was talking to someone just a week or so ago, went through a real hard time in their life, and they said, you know what, where was God then? And then they were reminded like, oh yeah, he was right there with me because I'm still here. Uh, like I'm still breathing. And even if I was gone, I'd be in a better place because I would be with my Lord. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, I think I would have wished that he would have let me die with that sickness or that illness or whatever it is that you're facing in your life. The worst thing that we fear sometimes is death, but even death is an entrance into heaven. And so let him keep you from fear. Let him keep you from falling. And your next blank says, let him keep you from failure from failure, verses 9 through 13, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. So 
here in verse 9 and 10. I hope that you see there's a little bit of a repeat in verse 9 about the Lord being our dwelling place and the Most High being our refuge. And he's just reminding us of what he's already said. He's not second or third highest. He's the Most High. There's no one holy like the Lord. No one compares to him. He is above all. And because of this, no evil will befall you. This means that you will not ultimately be given over to the hands of your enemy. You will not be devoured by your foe. In fact, it is not even close. No plague will ever come near your tent because the Lord's shield of protection will prevent any harm. He will place a hedge of protection around the believer and where there is a spiritual force, it will not be penetrated. He's got you covered. It's like God saying, I I got this. I got you. You're covered. You're under my wings. And one way the Lord does this according to the next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12, is that he commands his angels to take charge over you. I know you're going to think I'm charismatic again, but I'm showing you from the text. What do we read here? It says, for, the will, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. One way the Lord does this, protects you, looks after you, is to send his angels. Angels are messengers from God, but angels are also mighty warriors. Angels do battle in the heavenly realms. Angels are created beings and therefore are not to be worshipped, but boy, isn't it cool whenever they show up and do their thing throughout the Bible. You know, sometimes it may feel like Satan has the upper hand when it comes to spiritual warfare. We're like, ooh, the twilight zone. You know, we get scared about spiritual warfare. But can I remind you that you have the armor of God, that you're not fighting alone, that you have God on your side, that God also has at his disposal two-thirds of the angels? Last time I checked my Bible, it was one-third that fell. That means there's two-thirds that are employed to this day to God's beckoning call anytime he wants. He can put them into force and to charge them to protect you. Do you believe that? It's in the Bible. You should believe that God can do that at any moment of any time. Listen, the angel ministered to Daniel while he was in exile. The angels ministered to Christ when he fasted for 30 days. The angels ministered to Christ again when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. And if the angels are going to help out Daniel, and if the angels are going to help out the Lord Jesus Christ, then certainly you know they're going to help out you. Now you may not be able to know for a fact that was an angel. It could be another person. It could be a spiritual force that's invisible. I don't know how it all works. I just know they work. Angels are at work, and they're at the disposal of God, and we want to, of course, keep it in context. I'm not trying to get crazy here about like, oh my goodness, I've been touched by another angel, all right? So there's a balance to it, right? I'm not saying there's a devil behind every bush and an angel behind every blessing, but I am saying that God uses his angels in this verse, and he uses them in context. By the way, Satan tries to use this very verse out of context to tempt Jesus to jump off the temple in his temptation, which Jesus used another verse in context to remind Satan that we're not to put the Lord our God to a test. Again, it's just a reminder here that we can look to God because he protects us, he watches over us. Not only that, verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That's what he's saying for you, believer. If you're here today, there's a snake, 
You're going to stomp on him. There's a lion. You got this. <laughs> it's right here. Right? Satan is seen in the scripture, Genesis 3, as a snake. Satan is seen in the scripture, 1 Peter 5, as a lion seeking whom he may devour. And this verse is a reminder, uh-uh-uh, not so quick, Christian. You have the power in God to overcome all things. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So to summarize what we're learning so far in Psalm 91, God intends for every Christian, he intends for you to have a solid sense of security in this unsafe and insecure world. He's created you in his image and he's recreated you in Christ and you are not to be sufficient in yourself, courageous in yourself, or dependent on yourself. You're to find your security and your shelter in him. But if you don't have that sense of security that comes from God, it will lead to all kinds of problems in your life. Not only will you be weak as a person, you'll be weak as a Christian. He has made you to be a dependent being, needing something firm and secure that you can count on in this uncertain and dangerous world so that when the good things in life come crashing down, whether that be jobs or money or friends or family or spouses or health, when it all falls to pieces, you don't fall to pieces because your shelter is not that. Your shelter is God, and you come into his presence, and you're protected by his wings, and you will stomp on the devil, and no evil will befall you, and he sends his angels to protect you. There, there's a reminder here that there is no limit in time or scope to his protection. Big or small, natural or supernatural, he is on your side. We have no reason to fear. Troubles and trials may come, but our God delivers. So trust in the Lord to be your shelter. Trust in the Lord to provide you with safety. And then last, trust the Lord to be your satisfaction. Your next blank, he pledges to preserve all who hold fast to him in love. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. Now in the grammar of Psalm 91, the first part of the psalm, the psalmist speaks in the first person when he says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. In the second part of the psalm, he speaks in the third person saying, for he will deliver you. And now in this last part of the psalm, verses 14 through 16, it's now depicting God directly speaking through his word to you, the listener. So listen up. Because Psalm 91, 14, 15, and 16, it's God talking to you. And he says to you this morning through this verse, it is because you hold fast to him. It is because you cling to him. It's because you've drawn close to God that he will never let you go. Yes, he did love you first, but that love changed you and it caused you to love him with an undying love and an unwavering love and a relentless love. And because God sees that in you, Christian, and he sees that you're holding fast to him in love, he promises you today, I will deliver you, I will protect you, and I'm thankful for the fact that you know my name. You know who I am. I am El Elyon, the Most High God. I am El Shaddai, the Almighty. I am Yahweh, the covenant-making God. I am Elohim, the Supreme Creator God. He's saying, now you know my name. You call me anytime. 
You call me anytime, I will deliver you and I will protect you. This is the promise of our God. Not only that, but we see in verse 15, your next blank, he pledges to respond to all who call upon him for help. When he calls to me, I will answer him. Remember, this is God speaking to you. When you call to me, I will answer you. I will be with him, that's you, in trouble. I will rescue you and I will honor you. This is what God's committing himself to you. Again, God says when you call out to him, he'll be there. The heavens will not be silent. God is not like an idol that has no tongue or no voice. God does not sleep or slumber. He never gets tired. He doesn't grow weary. He never puts off requests. He never turns a deaf ear to the one who prays in accordance with his will. You can count on God. And whether you be in trouble or in great need, he will rescue you. He will be with you. He will honor you by answering your prayer. This binding covenant relationship that we have through Christ compels God to listen to and respond to you and, and, and to be there for you at your every need. And we call upon him in prayer because he is our God in whom we trust. He is the one who delivers us from every conceivable danger. We are helpless. He is the helper. We have questions, he is our answer. We hurt, he heals. We have sorrow, he is our solace. We are in crisis, he is our comfort. We cry out and he hears and he answers, not always in the way that we want him to, but in the way that we need him to, so that we can see that his ways are best, his wisdom is great, and his name can be trusted. Finally, he pledges to satisfy all who are in Christ with long life. Verse 16, God promises to you with long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. That's what he's saying here. He's talking out of the psalmist. And I'm saying subsequently, he's talking to you. The word of God's living and active. It's not just a promise for this psalmist once in time, but it's a promise for every believer that with long life, God will satisfy you. Long life here is a reminder that any amount of life is a gift from God. No matter how long or short it is, it is a gift from God. Spurgeon wrote here on this verse, quote, the man described in this psalm fills out the measure of his days and whether he dies young or old, he is quite satisfied with life and is content to leave it. He will rise from life's banquet as a man who has had enough and would not have any more of it if he could. You know what he's saying? On the day you die, you'll be glad you're dying. You won't want any more of this life because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you will say, I've had enough, Lord. Whether it be 5, 10, or 50 years, or 100, or 102. Like Lisa's grandma, she's 102. She's still going. Pretty cool. So the idea, though, is like, we've had enough. When it's your turn to die, you go and be with him, and you're gaining even more. And you would say, hey, I had a long life. Every moment was a blessing from God, and I'm satisfied in him. And I'm satisfied with whatever he gives me. It's Psalm 103, verse 5, that he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's, it's Isaiah 58, 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Are you satisfied in God today? Have you seen his salvation today throughout this passage? The promises that he makes can only be fulfilled if 
you know Jesus. The only way that God will cover you is if you have been covered with the blood of Christ. The only way that God will rescue you is if you have been ransomed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The only way that you can dwell in his shelter is by dealing with your sin at the cross. The only way that you can abide in the shadow of the Almighty is to know the one who came to seek and to save the lost. This psalm is for Christians. It's for those who are in God, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit. If you're here today and you're like, ah, I like all the protection stuff, but I don't know about Jesus, then you can't get in. It's for those who know Christ. And so I call you this day out of darkness and into light. And I call you this day to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ and in him alone. I, I call you this day away from fear and away from failure and away from fickleness. And I call you into a relationship with Jesus Christ that you would know him, that he is the way to this shelter and this refuge that we read about in this psalm. Come to a relationship with Jesus today and experience his love for you. Henry Light, in the middle of the 19th century, wrote a hymn based on Psalm 91. Listen to what it says. There is a safe and secret place beneath the wings divine reserved for all the heirs of grace. Oh, be that refuge mine. The least, the feeblest there may hide, uninjured and unawed, while thousands fall on every side. They rest secure in God. The angels watch them on their way and aid with friendly arm, and Satan roaring for his prey may hate but cannot harm. They feed in pastures large and fair of love and truth divine. O child of God, O glory's heir, how rich a lot is thine. A hand almighty to defend, an ear for every call, an honored life, a peaceful end, and Jesus crowns it all. Are you dwelling in the shelter of the Most High? And are you abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at Psalm 91, a precious gift to each and every Christian, that you would think of us today, God, that you would draw us in out of the heat, out of the snow, out of the rain, out of any pestilence, any darkness, any fear. You provide shelter, and you provide shadows, and you provide wings, and you provide armor, and you provide everything that we could ever need in you. And so I pray, God, that we would come a-running today to that strong tower. And we would be saved by your grace. And that even though difficulties will arise, we know where our comfort, our shelter, and our help is found in the Lord. Do a special work of grace in our hearts. Help us to meditate and think about these truths throughout this week so that we would feel your love and your protection for us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.